0: Um, I am going to read the scripture again, just so we have it straight in our minds as we get into this. Um, and so if you have a pew Bible, it's on page 951. If you have a, a, not a pew Bible, then it's going to be on page Psalm 110. Um, so there. Psalm 110, verses 1 to 7. It says this. A Psalm of David. Now, okay, listen As I read this I want you to pay Very close attention To something And hopefully you'll be able To see it in your Bible Even though you're in the dark um, It's okay to turn your Like smartphone flashlight on If you need to um, if, if you look in the In the scriptures here The first line it says The Lord says to my Lord Okay The first Lord Probably in your Bible Is in all capital letters The second Lord Has a capital L And then lowercase O-R-D That's because Translators do that Because the Hebrew word Is different Okay L-O-R-D, all caps, is Yahweh, the covenant name for God, the name God gives himself. The lowercase is Adonai, which is the generic Hebrew word for Lord that's applied to God. Okay? So, Yahweh says to Adonai, this Lord figure, that's what he says, he's speaking to him, "'Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet.'" The key to understanding the psalm is to recognize who the yours are referring to. And they are, in the first half, referring to Adonai, the second Lord, this figure. The Lord, meaning the Lord Yahweh, will extend your, Adonai's, mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies, that is the Lord Adonai, small, lower Lord, your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy majesty. From the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. Now, now, okay, listen. Now it switches. The Lord Adonai is at your Yahweh's right hand. The Lord Adonai, will, he will crush the kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook beside the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Now, I imagine there might be some people um, out there who are thinking, all right, that's that's really cool, Nick. You decided to do a tw- like a 12-week or 10-week series on the Psalms. There's 150 Psalms. You only had to pick like 10 of them, and you had to pick the one with the heaping up their debt. Thanks so much for like picking... The thing that in our present culture We all just kind of naturally feel embarrassed about That, uh, you know, that there's a king in the Bible That is totally unpluralistic He doesn't allow for many ways He's like the king that fights his enemies And heaps up their dead and kills them all And totally wins And <sighs> Really? You had to pick this one? And the answer is yes I absolutely did have to pick this one In fact, if I picked like two Psalms I would have picked this one as one of them And here's why because Psalm 110 is the second most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. Isaiah 53, I think, is the first. So the most quoted in the New Testament, it's the one Jesus uses in Matthew, Mark, and Luke to demonstrate his real identity to the Jewish teachers at the end of each gospel. It's the one used in the first public Christian sermon to bring to the grand finale. And it's, it's used all through the scriptures. For example, um, in uh, in Acts 2 this is, So this is the first public Christian message Other than by Jesus So Jesus has ascended, the Holy Spirit has come And there's this huge thing that happens There's all these people that, And Peter gets up to speak And he preaches for a while And this is how he ends his sermon God has raised this Jesus to life And we are all witnesses of the fact Exalted to the right hand of God Now stop right there for a second Now, you—if you read the Bible in the New Testament, you've heard this, like, right hand of God thing. Okay, listen. It's from Psalm 110. It's from a very specific place in the Bible, from this passage, Psalm 110. That's where it takes its meaning. That is, that if someone, if this Jesus, has been exalted to the right hand of God, that means he is the Christ, the Lord, the anointed Messiah, the Savior of the whole Testament, the one king that God has appointed. That's what it means if you're at God's right hand, because of Psalm 110. Moving on. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, right? Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Right? What he's saying is, David hasn't ascended into heaven yet. Right? The resurrection hasn't happened. So David did not bodily ascend and sit at the right hand of God. This is, therefore, Psalm 110.1 is speaking of somebody other than David. It's referring to the Messiah, the anointed king who was to come, which is this Jesus who did ascend and is seated at the right hand of God. Therefore, and, and he's like, and by the way, you, you killed him. Okay, so that probably wasn't a good move. Right? And then he says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Do you see, that argument flows right out of Psalm 110, verse 1. If he is the Lord, that the Lord Yahweh has made Lord, then God has made him both Lord, that is King, and Christ, that is anointed Messiah. See, so then the people say, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the others, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus the Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see how that also flows out of Psalm 110? Because what group do you not want to be in in Psalm 110? Right? The heaped up dead, crushed kinghead ones, right? You wanna be you wanna belong to the king when he comes, whoever he is, you wanna be on that team. And so he said and so how do you get on that team? How do you undo treason? Right? You say you're sorry for it, and you, you get your name placed in belonging to the one who's king. That is, you're baptized. What happens in baptism? When in baptism you take on the name of Jesus. You're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Now, it's important to recognize, though, that that's not all this psalm is about. In fact, the psalm brings up something that under the Jewish law was absolutely impossible. Psalm 110, whether you know it or not when you read it, breaks all the rules for the Old Testament following of God. What emerges from the sum is that the Messiah, the king, who turns out is Jesus, will be both the greatest king and the perfect priest. That is, that he will be the great priest king. Now, the reason that that's important is, is that that is not possible under the Jewish law. It's not possible. In the Jewish law, both the place of the king and the place of the priest are positions that are anointed by the choice of God, and they are not the same lines, and they cannot be the same lines. God has chosen and distinguished the line of priests under the Mosaic law to be the line of Levi, and a subset of the tribe of Levi, the line of Aaron. They are the priests. Only they can be priests. Nobody else can be priests, and that's all there is to it. The line of kings comes out of the tribe of Judah. It comes through the line of David, and that is the line of kings. And of that line, God swore that he would create an everlasting dynasty. Now, there's a problem there. Now, any other pagan nation of the world that weren't under God's revelation in the Torah, they—almost always the king was also the priest. And that's one of the reasons why people were so—people were so cynical about religion. Because when the political ruler (laughs) is the high priest It's very likely that the religion is going to get corrupted as a hand of the politics It's one of the reasons why they were kept completely separate in Jewish law However, in this song The Lord Yahweh says that there is a Lord Who he will make king Who he appoints as a priest forever That is, the king is going to be the priest, which is impossible through the line of Aaron. And so you get this really odd line. And if you're among the group of people who are here right now who have no idea who Melchizedek is, you are probably in the majority. Okay? But that's what it says. You will be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, right? Which you're kind of like, oh yeah, the order of Melchizedek, right? There's a lodge downtown, isn't there? You know? There's not. No. And they don't have an alcohol license. So... There's two verses, therefore, in this passage that are critically important. The first is verse 1, which says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That gets quoted a lot in the New Testament. The second verse that's critically important to understand to understand the significance of this psalm is verse 4, which says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So I want to split into two parts and talk about each one of those. Yeah? Okay. So the first to take from verse 1 is that Jesus— the savior is, is the God and human king Now I realize grammatically It should say the divine and human king But in Madison divine can mean anything Right? And so I, I can't really use that word Because God, God signifies a personal being it's not the God spirit or some strange—it's just—it's God. God is a person, and the human—the Messiah is a human king. So all through the Old Testament, there was this idea that there was going to be a Messiah, this ruling, anointed king who God would choose and raise up to be God, who was coming, right? And he was—this person was going to be a he, like a human man, a real man. He wasn't going to be God in the appearance of a human being. It was going to, no kidding, be a human. And one of the ra- ways we would know that is he was going to be born in an actual genetic line. He was going to be in the line of David. He would be a son of David That is 100% human And yet In Isaiah 11 In Psalm 110 More than almost anywhere else The Old Testament I'm not talking about what Jesus says about himself Or even the New Testament authors say about himself afterwards Before Jesus was ever born In this case a thousand years before he was ever born It's stated pretty clearly If you're paying attention That this human king would be God He is, he is the God and human king It's important to get that And you can get that from this psalm pretty clearly Now, the, the, one of the easiest ways to talk about this is this is, the, this is the passage Jesus brought up When he was arguing with this group of religious teachers Called the Pharisees They were the people who were theologically in charge in his day And so, this, so the whole Gospel of Matthew Kind of leads up to this confrontation Where the very first verse of Matthew's Gospel 1-1 says that Jesus is the son of David Humanly speaking, he's the son of David Right? And then it goes all the way through, and Jesus, all the way along, gets in these arguments with the Pharisees. He's trying to do his ministry, and these Pharisees keep going, You're wrong. Nope, you can't do this. And he, they get in these arguments. And he gets to chapter 22, and they're asking him this series of questions to get him in trouble, to trip him up, to make him contradict himself. And he just keeps giving really good answers. And then he, they get to this one point, and he goes, Listen, my turn. My turn to ask you a question. And the question that Jesus asks them is this one. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Christ, that is the, the anointed one or the Messiah, right? So Messiah is Hebrew, Christ is Greek, it means anointed one, the God's chosen one, right? Whose son is he? Right? And they just gave the answer that any Jewish religious teacher would just naturally give because it's right. They said, he's the son of David, right? And then this is how Jesus responds to that. Jesus said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? I wonder what passage of scripture he's quoting there. Right? For he, David, says The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on no one dared ask him any more questions. You see the logic what he's saying is David writes the song. David calls the Messiah Lord. Now listen, if he's the son of David, he's never going to be Lord over David. Even if he's a greater king, he wouldn't be David's Lord. That's not possible the, the, the son is always inferior to the sire In terms of lineage So who could possibly come after David But be David's lord until, Unless he was fundamentally different from David That is A person of whom God would say Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool And so on, you see And that was kind of a stumper Because Jesus wasn't saying He wasn't the son of David Genealogically speaking He was saying he was more than that Turns out, an awful lot more than that. And you, we really should be able to get this from the psalm itself. Because in the psalm itself, the, the Lord, Adonai, this this figure that is God's anointed one, everybody in Jesus' day understood that this, this figure was the Messiah. Whoever the Messiah was going to be, that's who was being spoken about here in Psalm 110. And that's partly because the way this figure is referred to is, is only things that are said about God himself. Now, in a few weeks when we get closer to Christmas— Lloyd is going to preach on Isaiah chapter 11, in which, again, you've got this human hero who is called the Prince of Peace, the Lord of Lords. He's called God. There's a couple places in the Bible that are like this, but this is one of them. For example, to sit at God's right hand, this is, this is the place where this, is, this language is launched in the Bible. And it's what is said about Jesus, right? He ascends into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. Why do we say that theologically? Because it's true. But it points to something in God's plan of redemption That is, to Psalm 110 That the day would come where this anointed one That God would choose and that God would bring about He would then take that person seat him at his right hand That is the place of his power, his authority, his identity Everything good, everything powerful Comes from his right hand And yet he will say, sit here while I work something out for you Now think about that What's the identity of this person? In Psalm 110, what's this person going to do? This is participatory as king, what's his role going to be? He's going to sit, but what's he going to do? He's going to destroy everything, right? He's going to fight, he's going to win, he's going to judge, he's going to rule, and nothing's going to stop him. That's what drinking from the brook along the way means. It means he's pursuing his enemies, he's tired, he comes to a brook, he drinks, and he keeps pursuing them because he's not tired enough yet to stop, right? So what does Yahweh God say to that figure? He says, come here and be seated, because it's not time for that right now. Your scepter, meaning your rule, is going to go out, and you're going to rule in the midst of your enemies, meaning your rule at this point while you're seated here, your rule is really going to exist in the midst of your enemies, not in conquering them at this moment in time. Right? Now, the language of footstool is also an interesting one, too, that— the enemies are going to become a footstool under his feet. That is, they're going to be conquered another way. But more interesting than that is how, is, is the reference to, to the enemies. Think about this. In the Bible, who are David's, en- David's enemies? Right? They're God's enemies, they're not David's enemies. And the enemies of the people of God are God's enemies, not anybody else's. But here, Yahweh Lord says to the Messiah, he says, you sit here while I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. That is— that, that the enemies of the redemptive plan of God in this context are not Yahweh's enemies. They are the Lord, the messianic Lord's enemies. That is, these are God's enemies, but they're his. That is, this person stands in the stead of God, does the work of God, and anything that, anything that belongs to him, belongs to him. That is, they're the same enemies, right? Also, there's the whole issue of his rule, how it works out which I talked about previously. But one of the things that, that's interesting about his present work is, so he's seated at the right hand of the Father, in this case, right? The, the Messiah sits at the right hand of Yahweh God and does not kill everyone while the Father works things out. Remember what Peter said in the sermon, right? He said, he said he's been seated at the right hand of God, and Yahweh God has given him who? The person of the Holy Spirit— And the Holy Spirit has then come to work out salvation Now think about this Your scepter, a thousand years before Your scepter will go out and you will rule in the midst of your enemies Before the day of battle Now Peter says Jesus has been raised and seated at the right hand of the God God has given the Holy Spirit who he's poured out So that we are witnesses of these things What does that mean, right? The gospel is going out to invite all people to come to him now, you're saying, well, Nick, you're probably reading that into Psalm 110. I mean, where is the going out, redemptive, all that stuff in Psalm 110? I don't see it there. Well, it's because that's what verse 4 is all about. What do priests do? Right? That brings us to point number 2, which is verse number 4, right? That he is the perfect Savior King by being the greatest priest. He's the absolute undisputed king, or will be, isn't presently, but will be, Right now, he rules in the midst of his enemies while he stays seated in his kingly role. But while he's there, one of the things that you can know in the psalm is this. There's only one thing in the psalm that's in the present. Right? It says, you will judge the nations. You will heap up their dead. You will crush the head of kings. You will drink from the brook beside the way and lift up your head. You will, you will, you will. But there's only one thing besides being seated that's in the present tense in the psalm. What is it? You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That's what it says, right? The Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. What? You are, present tense, right now, a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus, where is Jesus located in position to Yahweh God? He's seated right next to him. What is the work of a priest? To advocate for people to God. This is a good location for it, Right? It's a good location for it So you see the, the, the point is Is that at this At this moment In redemptive history The work of the conquering savior Is the work of the great high priest But it can't be in the line of Aaron It's in that Because it has to be some other thing Which is what gets us kind of into this issue Of like who, the, who on earth is Melchizedek And what does that mean Right That slide is wrong actually It's Genesis 14, 18 But Melchizedek only shows up three places in the whole Bible So if you're like, Nick, I've read a good bit of the Bible And I haven't read about this Melchizedek joker Yes, that's totally fine He only shows up three times in the whole Bible, okay? One is in Genesis 14, 18 Where um, Abraham has gone and fought this big battle He's coming back, right? And he runs this guy named Melchizedek Who's priest of God most high And he's the king of Salem Which is probably Jerusalem, right? And he brings bread and wine and gives it, gives it to Abraham on his way back from this victory Which is kind of odd that it's bread and wine Because if you read the rest of Genesis Whenever anything big happens like that People always bring meat Right? I don't know if that was a pre-reference to me I don't know, but it's, it's a little bit odd Anyway, the point is, that's all that happens He blesses Abraham Abraham gives him a tenth of everything that he owns as a gift And that's it, it's over And then we're on to the rest of the story And Melchizedek isn't mentioned again until this passage Psalm 110, verse 4 and all that said is, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And then, in the book of Hebrews, it gets picked up again. Now, here's the thing that's fun about that, is that in the book of Hebrews, chapters 5 to 7, there's a little sub-sermon in the book, because the book of Hebrews is basically a big, long sermon. I mean, longer than I preached last week. and um, And in it— One of the—like, one-sixth of the book is the section on Melchizedek. So what I'm going to do for a few minutes is I'm just going to preach that message. Right? It's a little—it's a little three-pointer, okay? The first is, is that when God appoints um, Jesus' as high priest, he's appointing him as Savior, because that's the work of a priest. To say, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, is to say to the Lord King, you will be the Savior— He will be both the king and the savior. Passage on this is in chapter 5. This is Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 and then verses 4 to 6. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. That's the role of a priest. God appoints them. It's their job to offer sacrifices for sins before God for people. That is, to bring people to God through the only means possible for that. That's what a priest does, right? Then verse 4. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. You remember that? From like four weeks ago when Lloyd preached on Psalm 2? Now, watch here. The author of Hebrews takes that from Psalm 2 and this from Psalm 110. It's the same person. The, uh, the, the ascending king Who will rule over all the nations in Psalm 2 And the Lord Who is the king of all nations Who is appointed priest in the order of Melchizedek Are the same person It's the Messiah It's Jesus Right? And he says And he said in another place You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek Okay This builds So the second bit is here Is this Jesus' kingship and priesthood are irrevocable That is, they're forever Now think about that in terms of verse 4 Listen carefully to what verse 4 says. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, just think about this. Have you ever had a parent talk to you like that? Or have you ever talked to your kid like that? Like, when I talk to my kids, I just say yes or no. But every once in a while, they'll push me, and they'll push me, and they'll push me, and I'll say something like this. Listen, let me just promise you something. This is never going to happen. I'm not going to change my mind. doesn't matter how much you pester me. doesn't matter how much you, do, you whine. You can pitch a fib. Blah, 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 you just get punished for it, okay? I am not going to change my mind. I mean, here's the thing for those of you who know the Bible decently well. Can you think of any other place where God swears? Where he takes an oath? Where he doesn't just say what's going to happen? You see, the, the, the thing with God is he doesn't have to swear anything. Because God has a completely dependable personality God is the truth He only speaks the truth He is the, He only acts truthfully And so if he says, I'm going to do X He's going to do X There's no need on his side of things For there to be an oath He's 100% truthful So why on earth would he do this? I mean, all the engineers are like, oh, it's so redundant It's inefficient, right? But it's because it's psychologically necessary You see, he's making a promise to human beings who don't believe him. And so when he says, the Lord, the Lord Yahweh has sworn and he will not change his mind, you are a priest, duration, forever in the order of Melchizedek. Do you see the emphasis there? Who's that for? Right? Be, well, Nick, we can't know what it's for. He says, well, we can. we will just got to read Hebrews and it explains it. Ready? This is chapter 6, verses 13 and 20. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. So in the story of Abraham, God makes a promise to him like three times. And Abraham kind of bugs out on the promise a few times. And there's one point where he says, I want you to sacrifice your son, Isaac, who is the one who's supposed to fulfill the promise. And Abraham's like, I'm supposed to kill the guy who's supposed to bring about the promise. Okay, and so he goes and takes him to this place, and he's going to sacrifice his son. And the angel of the Lord comes to him and says, Stop, don't do it. And then, at that moment, God swears to him he will bring about the promise. And from from there on out, it seems like Abraham pretty much believes it's going to happen. Similarly, he says— And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Then he says this, Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear. To the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that purpose— By two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain to where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a priest, high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Okay, see how this is playing out? One of the things that always frustrated me about this passage of Hebrews is that first set of clauses. God did this so that—all right? So we're going to get the reason why God did this. That sounds good, right? By two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. So I'm already confused, right? Yeah, I mean, it's like trying to read, like, Karl Marx. I mean, the sentences. Ugh, right? So here's the thing. By two unchangeable things in preposition, right? prepositional phrase that's going to modify two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. So what that means is that in the—whatever the two things are, right, in both of them it's relevant that it is impossible for God to lie. So what are the two things? The two things are that the promise and the oath were separate, but that God gave them both. So if God had just said, I promise, here's what's going to happen, that would have been enough. That's an unchangeable thing. It's impossible for God to lie. When God said to Abraham the very first time, go over here, do that, and I'm going to do such and such, that's all that was necessary. It was already going to happen. God was already going to fulfill it. It was totally unchangeable. It's impossible for God to lie because he's not going to change his character because God has a perfect character, so he's not going to go back on his word. Right? In addition to that— To Abraham, he swore, he took an oath. He said, I will definitely, definitely do that. Now, that is totally redundant. But why did he do it? The passage says, because he wanted it to be clear. He wanted it to be clear so that we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered us may be greatly encouraged. Meaning, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Do you see the point there? You see, it's it's one thing to say, well, okay, Nick, I think I know where you're going with this, but I don't even know if I trust the Bible. Okay, fine. I can't answer every question every Sunday, but let's put that question aside for just a second and say this. If the Bible is God's word like I believe it is, the word of God written, is it clear enough to tell us how God deals with people So that we can actually know Or does God want us To experience reality In such a way That we don't really know You see Has anybody ever heard Of evangelism explosion? You ever heard of that? Okay, so some people More experienced saints Have, have heard of that So s- several years ago A pastor in Florida D. James Kennedy Came up with this thing called Evangelism explosion Which is basically Consisted of people Going to people's houses And asking them Starting off with this question If you died tonight do you know for sure whether you'd go to heaven or hell? That's kind of an interesting question, right? It presumes a few things, right? That the person believes in heaven and hell, right? And w- w- what's the whole question trading in? The whole question is trading in certainty, isn't it? And it, here's why because it was designed for an era in America in which people were Christ haunted even if they didn't really believe in God and didn't go to church, and if they just—they were Baptist because they went to an Easter service when they were seven. And you asked them if they were a Christian, what would they say? Yes. It's only recently that those people have, have gotten real and said, no, I'm nothing, right? And so people say, oh, there's 70% un, unaffiliated people in America. America's losing their religion. No, they're just getting honest about their religion. They used to call themselves Baptist or Lutheran or whatever when they weren't, and now they don't. Nothing's changed in terms of people's actual commitments. It's just you don't lose anything culturally anymore to say that you're nothing. So you could just say it. Right now, what happens though? Is that that question is a question about whether or not you can know Because if I, asked, if I asked people in 1984, are you a Christian? They'd say yes, and so conversation stopped, right? But if I say, do you know for sure whether you go to heaven or hell? You, what would you say? Well, if you didn't understand the gospel really clearly, you'd be like, well, I try to be a good person, and, you know, I try to help people around me, and I try not to kick dogs and babies, and I just feel like that, you know, God's probably forgiving, and so I really think I'll probably— okay, right? And then what's the—boom. They're nailed, right? Because what's the—what are they trading in an evangelism? was uncertainty. It's—well, listen, you can know. You can know right now. You know right now you're going to go to heaven, because Jesus promises it. And you go to heaven based on his performance, not yours So whether how, per, how well you've been performing Doesn't matter Jesus performed perfectly You can actually know this Now, why don't we do evangelism explosion here at High Point Church Besides that we're too lazy And terrified of our neighbors not liking us It's because if we asked that particular question What would they say? Most, most modern urban people They'd be like, no I don't know and neither do you Because the idea of spiritual certainty Is just preposterous in their worldview, right? We've got to come up with a different question there's lots of good questions you can ask. You don't have to get married to one. But, the, but there, it is worth asking this question. Whether or not our neighbors believe in assurance, is assurance possible? And you see, this passage of Scripture, which looks back to Psalm 110, says what? Yes. Yes. It says that God is so ordained that there would be a written word— a God-man Jesus Christ and a testimony to him through a living church that people would be proclaimed a message that God not only promised but he swore to. And the reason he redundantly and Inefficiently took the time and interest to swear it in two different biblical stories related to Abraham and related to the Messiah King and then to connect those in the promise of the gospel was so that the message would be clear that we can be redeemed. That the king that will destroy everything is the one who is also your priest and can destroy everything that would destroy you. He has the ability to bring you to himself. He has the ability to draw you in. He has the ability to make the sacrifice necessary on your behalf. He did it in his crucifixion. And he demonstrated that it was accepted by Yahweh God, the Father, in his resurrection. So that if the Bible is true, the Bible is clear. that you do have a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, that still leads you to like, okay, but (sighs) Melchizedek. Well, here's why Melchizedek is important. Because through Jesus being a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, the promise isn't just sure, it's better. That's what the author of Hebrews says. He says, it's not just sure. It's one thing for God to swear and to demonstrate how absolutely unchangeable it is so that you can actually—it can be clear and that you could be greatly encouraged and that you could have an anchor in your soul that's absolutely firm. And listen, you, you might say, well, you know, Nick, I'm just not as into certainty as you people apparently are. Listen, then you ain't in the game because life is a battle. And if you don't experience life If you're not trying to live a life That is beautiful and honorable And truthful in the glory of Christ Then you might, be, you might say that You might be like, you yeah, know, it's not that hard Listen, if you give yourself To a life that cares about what Jesus cares about To one that cares about what's good, true, right, and beautiful If you, if that's what you live for If you're living in a redemptive direction Listen, you're swimming upstream You're going to have days Where you need an anchor you're going to have days where you don't think you're going to make it You're going to have days where you're going to fall apart You're going to have days where, and listen You cannot keep filling your emotional gas tank From your gas tank I remember hearing this joke when I was a kid Where, um, I think it was like In a Reader's Digest or something But it was like, there was, there was this guy and he was talking to me he said, he said, I spent um, he, said, he said, you know, I wish that all my li- livestock Didn't eat as much food Because man, if, I could, if the expense was lower I'd just be able to really make some money as a farmer And the guy said, well listen I once taught a horse how to not eat. And the guy's like, what? You taught a horse how to not eat? He's like, oh yeah. Oh yeah. He's like, he's like what I did was I, like, I fed him a little less and a little less and a little less until I finally got to the point where I just didn't feed him anything and um, he just didn't have to eat. And he's like, that works? He's like, oh yeah, oh yeah, did it. Worked awesome. So the f- first piece of livestock I ever heard anywhere that didn't have to eat. The guy's like, wow, I didn't know. He's like, yeah, you know, and a week later he up and died on me after all that work. Right? You Listen, you have to have resources from the outside. Like, if you're in the game, the Bible refers to the Christian life as a fight, as war. It's not because we're a violent people. Remember, we're the religion that gets killed, not kills. All right? And so, like, you that takes a lot of strength to take it in the chin, and to take it in the chin, and to take it in the chin for the glory of God. And listen, you cannot afford to—, to Get your resources of strength from yourself Because when you are not a strength You can't be turned into you for it And you have got to have an anchor Something strong enough That it can strengthen you And that's why God sought to it To speak clearly And that doesn't mean you have to be mean To other people that don't believe that but we don't have any business backing down from the clarity of the Savior because other people believe reality is a bit ambiguous. And it's not just sure, it's better. That's one of the reasons why the writer of Hebrews says it's so great that Jesus isn't in the order of Aaron, he's in the order of Melchizedek. Because that is way better. For three reasons. One is—it's like 3-3-3, three, this three, three. probably drive me nuts— um, one reason is this, is that Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Now, what does that mean? Well, the greater person always blesses the lesser person. And so the author people says, think about it this way. Abraham was the father of Levi. Levi was the father of Aaron. So when Melchizedek blesses Abraham, and Abraham receives it and affirms it, like, you're right, I'm less than you. What that means is Melchizedek's place— Is greater than Abraham That is, he's greater than the promise And he's greater than Aaron That is, he's greater than that whole priesthood He's better His name, Melchizedek Is built off of two Hebrew words Melchizedek, Melch is king Tzedek, righteousness His name means the king of righteousness And he's the king of Salem The anglicized version of the Hebrew word Shalom, which means Harmony and peace So The priesthood of Melchizedek, the author of Hebrew argues, he is the king of righteousness who is king over the true peace and harmony of rightly woven humanity. And he is greater than the previous promise. He's not just sure, he's better. And what's necessary in relating to that? is that when you look at chapter— Hebrews chapter 6, it's very specific about what that means for us. What does that mean for you, right? Are there six principles about parenting you can get out of this? Yes, but that's a sermon for another day, I suppose, if we want to do principle sermons. But here's, here's what it says. What, what action is left for us? What do we do? You see, it says about Jesus— look at the bottom— Jesus who went before us— Has entered in our behalf, he has become the high priest forever. Now, if you're not familiar with some of the Old Testament language about the temple, what that means is Jesus, as the priest, has gone into the temple, which has the holy presence of God, and he's taken with him himself on the cross as a sacrifice to present that before God so that we can receive God's forgiveness. And in so doing, he's become the priest, but he's greater than Aaron because he's the king of righteousness, the king over peace, and he's greater than the previous promises. That's what he's done. Now, what's left for us to do? Well, that's the first part there. It says, you see, the author of Hebrews, who's we? We is the believing people that the book of Hebrews is written towards. He says, we who have what? Fled. How does that sound for being part of an army? Right? It says in Psalm 110 that you will have willing soldiers on the day of your battle, right? But how do those willing soldiers become part of your people? They run like they're running for their lives. They flee to Jesus Who have fled To take hold of the hope Offered See, see the passivity on our, our behalf It's a gift, it's given to us The only thing we do actively is what? We take hold of it We run to it And we grab it Even though it was offered to us We don't even have to catch it <laughs> We just have to run to it and we grab it And that's what's always left for us In Christian faith. It's what's always left for us. It's called repentance and faith, repentance and trust. It's to say, I need this desperately. I have been wrong to resist it and fight against it. God, I need exactly what you have for me, and I want it. I want the one who you have crowned as Lord to be my Lord and King. I want to follow him. I want to live for what he lives for. I want to care about what he cares about. I want to be—I want to be among his people— And I realized that this this is not accomplished through me doing anything. But it was accomplished by us receiving a priest. Now, listen, I don't know about you. I I grew up in one of the robed denominations. And when you tell me that God has prepared a priest for me, that doesn't do anything for me emotionally, okay? The the coolest people still look dorky in those outfits, right? And so I recognize that for a lot of you, it's for me to be like, listen, don't you see— Don't you see God has prepared a Messiah King priest for you? Don't you see what good news that is? And you're kind of like, I'm picturing a guy in a habit with a collar and a funny thing. I don't know. That doesn't do anything for me. But when you recognize that everything that you need has been done for you by someone and you could never do it, that's what a priest is. And this priest is greater and better than Sitting at the right hand of God, extending his scepter of his rule even among his enemies. Why? So that his enemies can be saved. That's the kind of king he is. He waits patiently for millennia so that his enemies could be brought in, could be saved. He would would rather do the work, at least right now, he would rather do the work of a priest than of a king in the way he will later do it. Because the offer to you and me is... Come, let this one be your priest. Receive forgiveness. Belong to him. Run and take hold of what he has done. Because if you do, God has been so clear that you will be greatly encouraged. You will have an anchor for your soul. And that will apply to everything you experience all day the rest of your life. It will completely transform you from the inside out. And it will apply to everything. Every relationship. Every bit of work, every action, every decision, everything. Because you will have the courage for everything. And you won't be filling yourself up anymore from yourself.